It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. Right COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to a very special all-animal edition of the Tom Sumner Program, featuring a wildlife veteran who travels the world to care for wild animals. She's known as Dr. Gabby Wild, coincidentally, and she's teamed up with National Geographic Kids for a uh, great book um, featuring some of her adventures called, in fact, Wild Vet Adventures, Saving Animals Around the World with Dr. Gabby Wild. Coming up in the uh, second hour, we're going to talk with um, the president and founder of uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, um, the largest animal rights organization in the world, Ingrid Newkirk. She's also written a book called Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. And um, she's been on the show, talked about this book before, but this is uh, this is brand new. She's back and we're talking some more about uh, animals and animal cruelty, etc. Um, but we're going to start out the conversation with the uh, president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation, uh, Colin O'Mara, is going to join me uh, by phone. 
and uh, he's going to talk about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act and and a lot more. Anyway, I thought it'd be fun to uh, pull these three interviews together and put them on one day for the animal lovers out there. Uh, it's an all-animal edition of the uh, Tom Sumner program. And nothing about it is, is time-sensitive or anything. It's uh, just... Um, when we could get everybody together and uh, and and talk about these things and we'll have some other some other fun as well uh, throughout the show today with uh, special comedy and music to tie into our all animal theme on today's edition of the Tom Sumner program but coming up first here in in just uh, oh about a half a minute or so we're going to talk, uh, like I mentioned, with uh, Colin O'Mara, president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. And then a little later in the show, the uh, PETA founder and president, Ingrid Newkirk, will be joining us. And a really fun in, and interesting conversation with Dr. Gabby Wild, the uh, wildlife uh, veterinarian who travels the world and does dental work for uh, leopards and stuff. <laughs> anyway, it's going to be a fun show. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk about wildlife this hour and uh, the political urgency of uh, passing the Recovering America's Wildlife Act with the President and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation, who joins me by phone, Colin O'Mara. Colin, welcome to the show. Tom, thanks for having me on this morning. Um, what are the dangers that, that the nation's wildlife face? Uh, are, we, are we talking about wildfires? Are we talking about encroaching on habitats? What what are the things that are at uh, risk? Yeah, and unfortunately, we're kind of talking about all the above. Um, I mean, the biggest threats to, to wildlife tend to be habitat loss, and that's, in some cases, that's you know, kind of the eradication of habitat. In some cases, that's fragmentation or degradation. Um, but there's, you know, kind of just as we're, you know, there's more development, as there's more roads, as, you know, just over the last half century, you know, we've, we've built, you know, millions of miles of roads, um, you know, and obviously, you know, we've seen our population triple over the last 80 years. Um, and so a combination of all those things is sort of putting great pressure, and then you layer on top uh, more disease, uh, different types of um, invasive species on both plants and animals that um, often don't have predators and, and kind of can crowd out native species, and then a whole range of, of new sources of, of pollution um, and then layer on top of all of that, you know, kind of climate change and changing temperatures and you know, more extreme weather events like fires, as you mentioned, or or hurricanes. And it's, it's just a it's a recipe for what you know, folks are calling the the sixth extinction, which is in the U.S.'s case at least about well, one third of all species are at a heightened risk of extinction compared to half a century ago. Now, aren't um, don't animals instinctively? And, and I'm thinking about climate change and encroachment but don't animals instinctively migrate so, yeah, many species migrate um, and if they have the opportunities to there's also species that you know we've kind of put up man-made barriers to make migration difficult so for example you know a lot of the, the great migrations in the west um, you know species that you know like the pronghorn or the mule deer or 
or the elk. Um, you know, a lot of the major migration routes have, have shifted, um, and you know, in some cases, move further north for for temperature reasons. But there may be major highways um, that, that block them, and no way, no way to kind of get across um, in an easy way, given the uh, given the you know, four lane or eight six lane or eight lane highways in some cases. And so, you know, some of the work is simply just making it easier um, by reconnecting some of these these corridors, for example, with you know overpasses or underpasses, or you know, re reestablishing um, just habitat connectivity more broadly from you know, public lands to private lands. But you know, we want to make it as easy as possible for species to be able to adapt to the the changing environment around them. Now, what does the um, Re- Recovering America's Wildlife Act actually do to make any of those things different? So, so right now, the federal government actually requires that all states have a what they call a state wildlife action plan. And states have to identify the species of greatest conservation need in their states. So in the case of Michigan, it's more than 300 species have been identified by, by, uh, by, by Michigan DNR. And, in the, in the, and the states are already required to put up strategies for how they would help recover those populations. The, the challenge is that there's really never been funding at a substantial level to try to help implement those plans. And so you have these great plans, but they're kind of an unfunded mandate. And so the, the bill would very simply um, direct resources to each of the states to help implement those plans. It would require some matching funds to make sure there's kind of local skin in the game. Um, and then it would then it would also have a few other um, kind of pots of money and incentives for uh, certain types of innovative work, collaborative work across borders. There's resources for, for tribes. Um, there's, you know, there's tens of millions of acres of land in important wildlife habitat that are managed by by tribal nations across the country. Um, but the idea is that by making these strategic investments and these plans that are already developed, we could help recover you know, the more than 12,000 species of greatest conservation need across the country in ways that are proactive, that are collaborative, um, ways that are you know, really on the ground and bringing partners together and, and, and frankly, avoiding you know, some of the, the conflict that comes when you know, all else fails and you, you know, need more of a regulatory or a like, kind of litigation approach. So the idea is more collaboration to save these species. What are the best ways to, um, to turn uh, the, the tide of extinction for some species? Is it um, locating to pre- uh, preserves? Um, what, what is the best way to address that? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in, I mean every species is a little different, but in a lot of cases, it's just improving the quality of habitat and the and the and the amount. And so, you know, there's there's a, a recent success in the um, in the state of Michigan, the Kirtland's warbler, um, which was a species that was in trouble for for years. And you know, it kind of depends on on healthy. And it's a it's a small yellow songbird. It's this beautiful bird, and it overwinters in the Bahamas, but it returns every year to Michigan. Um, for and and it returns for kind of summer breeding in the in the kind of the pine forest habitats in the kind of the middle of the northern part of the United States state. But you know, due, due to you know, fire suppression efforts and you know, competition from like cowbirds and other threats, the numbers of the, of the warbler fell from you know under, from from there was under you know, 170 breeding pairs in the 70s and 80s and had to be listed as an endangered. And the um, and the Department of Natural Resources worked with you know all kinds of private landowners to try to help restore um, at least pine these kind of jack pine habitats across the state, so you know, better better kind of forest habitat and a better managed forest. And the population's gone up, you know, more than more than tenfold, I mean, more than twenty three hundred, fifteenfold. There's more than twenty three hundred nesting pairs today. 
and and this was a, a species that was able to be you know removed from the Endangered Species Act last year. Um, but the, the the key was that the, the habitat improved. I mean, they were able to you know both through kind of planting and better management of the resource, removal of invasive species, working with some of the timber companies to to limit impacts. Um, again, through a, a very um, collaborative and kind of proactive approach, we could do that again for thousands more species. The biggest limiting factor is just having sufficient resources to do so. Is is it incumbent on the uh, on the government to do this stuff as opposed to say fundraising efforts by organizations like the National Wildlife Federation and other private foundations? Is it something government has to do? I, I do think there's a, there's a role for government. I mean, these are public trust resources, right? Like wildlife in the U.S. is kind of owned by everybody, and everyone has has skin in the game. And and we do have great models for this, right? So in, in the case of you know, the species that we hunt and fish, you know, there's a small tax that's on um, you know, firearms and munitions or fishing capital um, that, that, you know, is then distributed to the states for to help recover, you know, deer and wild turkeys and ducks and, you know, a whole range of sport fish. And, and, that, and then that, that money is then leveraged by private donations and, and private resources. Uh, you know, in some cases, you know, additionally, you know, state fishing licenses or hunting licenses or different tags. Um, but this idea of having both kind of public and private resources coming together, but because it is a resource that's not privatized like it is in some other parts of the world, because it is a public resource, you know, we think there should be kind of public skin in the game, but then it's matched through, matched by the private sector to help do it. And unfortunately, as much as I love the you know the nonprofit community to be able to come up with all the money on their own, um, I think the evidence over the last you know 40 years of species are declining is that we can help you know, support a lot of these efforts, but there's no way for uh, just nonprofits to be able to carry the carry the work we're losing species too fast right now. Well, there are infrastructure things that that play a role in it too that government would have to be involved in to some degree. But tell me about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. It recently uh, passed out of the House Natural Resources Committee. Has it made it to the to the House floor yet? So last year, it, so last year it passed and um, is part of an infrastructure package. Um, that did not pass it. So it passed the House as part of an infrastructure package, but not the Senate. Um, and we're hoping to kind of rectify that this year. I mean, the nice thing about this bill is that it's got such broad bipartisan support. And, you know, I mean, in, in, you know, in Debbie Dingell, the you know, great, great congresswoman from from the southern part of, of, of Michigan, is, you know, kind of the, the lead House sponsor, but it's also got you know, Republican support, you know, for folks like Fred Upton and, and many folks. And, you know, but more than, I think, almost 50 Republicans are on the bill in the House. Um, and so we're really optimistic about its its chances. So the goal is to get it through the House you know, fairly quickly, and then you know, give ourselves time to work through the uh, the Senate, which obviously is a little a little more more of a, a gauntlet these days. Um, but again, things that are bipartisan that you know that create jobs is one of the nice things about investments and in, you know, habitat restoration. As FDR learned during the the New Deal, right, the Civilian Conservation Corps was a great way to put people to work. This is the same type of program where we can put a lot of young people to work doing habitat work. And um, creating a bunch of jobs in the in the process, while also saving species that uh, kind of are, are incredibly diverse and unique to unique to America. So we're we're optimistic we'll get it through the the house hopefully in the next couple of months, and then we're you know, off to the races to get it hopefully to the president's desk by the uh, by the fall. More with National Wildlife Federation President Colin O'Mara straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with National Wildlife Federation President Colin O'Mara straight ahead. Did it have to be um, renegotiated and and uh, put through the the process in the House again, or is this the same bill that was passed last year? So it's ninety five percent the same. Um, I think there's a few tweaks that as we're as we're learning more, we're always trying to make sure we're using like kind of the most updated science. But you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's virtually the same bill, um, and that we're you know we're trying to the folks are always trying to try to tighten up the language and you know make sure that it does exactly what it says it's going to do. But it'll be yeah, the, the vast majority of it will be exactly the same as before, which then makes it easier to to go through because folks are basically just reapproving something they've already approved in the past. But procedurally, it died in the Senate and and had to be reintroduced in the House, and it has made it through the House Natural Resources Committee. So it's headed to the House floor, or has it been passed yet yes. by the House? No, so, so, yeah. So unfortunately, you know, I don't feel like I'm gonna, I kind of like schoolhouse rocks. So at the end of the last Congress, that's why I'm a bill. That's the end of the last Congress. So it, it's going to be reintroduced in the next couple of weeks in the House, and then it'll go. It'll go through committee very quickly because it's already passed through committee, um, and then it'll go to the floor in the uh, in the House. And then what's, um, if it has bipartisan support going through the House, why is it, um, why was it dead in the Senate? I mean, last year, I think we really, really we ran out of time. Uh, there, the, uh, the package that it was attached to was a bigger infrastructure conversation that got tied up kind of in election year politics with um, questions over like how it should be paid for and whether it should be paid for and um, and so there was, there was there was a surface transportation piece of that piece of legislation. There was a water infrastructure piece that, and unfortunately, like the Senate just didn't end up taking up the bill at all. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't like it was voted down on the merits. It just you know they, for the most part, the Congress wasn't in, or the Senate wasn't in for you know, most of the fall um, with the election. And so, unfortunately, a lot of kind of good ideas. And then the COVID packages that for the immediate relief kind of took precedence. And so you know I think now well it took precedence uh, and dollars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I think President Biden you know, ran on a kind of aggressive infrastructure conversation, including you know, natural infrastructure as a way to uh, help improve community safety and, and kind of solve a bunch of other um, challenges at the same time. And so we're hopeful that you know, this could be part of that conversation. Um, we're optimistic that it will be, uh, like, it was, like it was last year. Now, what exactly is the National Wildlife's uh, or National Wildlife Federation's role in all this is it a, a lobby group what 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 is the mission of the federation and what are some of the programs sure no i appreciate the question so so we're we're a, the national wildlife federation um is a, basically a, a a nonprofit organization that helps through education and outreach and and advocacy try to make sure tries to make sure that wildlife can thrive in our rapidly changing world and you know we've been around for about 80 years um, you know, we're, we're the publishers of Ranger Rick magazine. I'm guessing many of your your, your uh, listeners have heard of, and, and we run education programs in you know almost 20,000 schools across the country. And, you know, and we also do you know advocate for policies that are good for good for wildlife. And we try to do it through ways that are collaborative. Um, we try to do it at the local, state, and federal level, and we try to bring Republicans and Democrats together to try to you know kind of do great things for our natural resources and for and for people. 
And the and the idea is that you know, the basic idea going back to the going back to our founding is that um, you know wildlife doesn't have a vote, <laughs> but so people have to speak out for them, and that you know, these are issues that are that should be inherently nonpartisan. Um, because you know, there's, there's this, as a friend of mine often says, there's no such thing as a Republican white-tailed deer or a, or a Democratic smallmouth bass. You know, we need folks to kind of stand up on both sides to take care of these treasures that, frankly, in addition to like their intrinsic value, also are just a huge part of our economy. I mean, the outdoor economy across the country is you know 900 billion dollars of revenue and seven million seven million jobs. I mean, these are investments that have you know really high return um, for the uh, for the overall overall GDP of the country. Well, and and hunters are both Republican and Democrat, and hunters tend to be, you know, pro-conservation um, for a, a variety of reasons. Absolutely. And, and look, I mean, our organization was founded by many hunters. I mean, I, I myself am a member of the Boone and Crockett Club, professional, professional club, uh, professional membership. The, you know, our, our Michigan state affiliate is Michigan United Conservation Clubs, which is obviously one of the leading sports sporting voices in, in the state of Michigan. And, and, and I think one of the things that we've been trying to do the last few years is show that there's actually a lot of alignment between the interests of, you know, you know, hunting groups. And we work really closely with, like, you know, Ducks Unlimited and the Congressional Sportsman Foundation, the Boone and Crockett Club, and, you know, North Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Wild Turkey Federation, um, you know, Pheasants Forever, all those kind of groups, as well as, you know, the greener groups, the, the you know, the NRDCs and EDFs and, um, and uh, League of Conservation Voters, and there's actually more agreement among those groups, <laughs> especially around habitat, you know, maybe not on some of the regulatory questions, but on habitat at least, and trying to be a bridge where we can bring these groups together to do big things. Well, and, and the bill um, provides uh, almost $1.4 billion um, in annual funding for wildlife conservation efforts in every state and territory. Um, but the majority of the money goes to wildlife recovery efforts led by state wildlife agencies. Does every state have one? Yes. Yeah, so every state is required to have a plan. Every state has a state agency. So in Michigan, you have, you have a great agency, the Michigan DNR, led by Dan Eikenter, um, who's an amazing conservationist. Um, and, and so then, then there's a formula that kind of divvies up the money based on a combination of size and population and the kind of number of species in need. And, and so every state would get resources. They'd have to provide matching funds for a, a portion of it. But the idea is that, that on-the-ground kind of collaborative conservation at the state level is one of the pieces that's missing when it comes to the full diversity of wildlife. But it's also been one of the most successful areas for saving, you know, game species, you know, the species that are hunted fish in the past. So using that model and then kind of expanding it to more species through collaboration, you know, with, with local investment uh, is you know, one of the pieces that's been missing in the in the kind of species recovery equation. Well, you know, whenever there's an issue in, in Washington, there are always two questions to ask. Who cares and how are you going to pay for it? What are the, <laughs> what are the longer-range economic um, benefits of making an investment of $1.4 billion in restorative uh, actions for wildlife and habitats and so on? So this is kind of that classic Ben Franklin adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, right now, what happens if a species declines to the point where it needs protections under the Endangered Species Act is that, you know, you end up in an environment where you, you often have to, have to promulgate you know, regulations from the federal government 
that really limit the activities that can occur in the habitat areas of those of those species. And just like basic health care, I mean, like, you know, that, that checkup with your doctor <laughs> before something kind of reaches a crisis point is so much, you know, it's more cost effective. It's, you know, it's, 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 your, your likelihood of recovery is much higher. Um, we need a little more preventative medicine. We need a little more upstream work and trying to save species before they're on the brink of extinction. And, you know, we, we right now there's more than 1,600 species, plants and animals, that are listed as endangered or threatened under the Endangered Species Act. That number is anticipated to be several thousand more in the coming years unless we have some kind of early intervention. So the costs of inaction are massive. I mean, the costs on, on business, the costs on federal revenues, the costs on um, federal expenditures. And so this is a, you know, we view this as a kind of strategic down payment to try to avoid those longer-term costs. And there's all these other and kind of secondary benefits where, you know, when you have more wildlife, you have more opportunities for outdoor recreation, hunting and fishing, I mean, outdoor wildlife watching photography, all the things that can drive, help drive local economies. During the pandemic, folks are spending more time outdoors than ever before. Um, and we're seeing this kind of statistically all across the country. It's a way to keep folks engaged. So, you know, again, we think this ounce of prevention um, is definitely worth avoiding the, uh, the pound of cure that would be necessary otherwise if, if things were allowed to get worse. When you talk about, uh, like, the construction of roads, when there are a lot more roads now than there used to be because of an increasing uh, human population, and, and these roads, in, in some cases, cutting off uh, uh, migration routes, um, how, how does money or, or intention um, affect that is it are there things like designated elk crossings or you know how do you how do you address that when you've fundamentally cut off a species from their normal migration route yeah i mean one of the amazing things with, with kind of gps tracking data um and just you know we probably collar we work with groups that collar a lot of animals kind of get a, a real a very, you know, very specific sense of like where migration routes are and where the choke points are and the like. Um, it, it's interesting in Wyoming. Wyoming's probably done the best job in the entire country of mapping migrations. Um, they, have a, they have an amazing partnership between their state agency and the and the university there, and and they've identified just a handful of places where if you had either either, a, either an overpass or an underpass, um, you could basically alleviate a huge number of fatalities for the species, but also a huge you could also eliminate a huge number of traffic accidents um, because, you know, the, the, in this case, you know, the, uh, the, the mule deer are trying to cross at specific points on, on Highway 80. And, and, you know, so we know kind of where the locations are. And so then, you know, having resources working with the state, in that case, transportation agencies, to actually put, you know, kind of crossings, that would be, be overpasses. It wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't be like a traffic card. But the idea would be to um, actually have some of this physical infrastructure in place to reconnect systems that we have disconnected over over a long time. There's a huge project going on in California we're involved in. Um, the mountain lion habitat has been fragmented um, by you know, the, the 401 and the 405 and the 101, these massive freeways out in California. Um, and we can basically save the mountain lion population from going kind of closer to extinction there um, by having one overpass that connects Kind of the, um, the kind of the mountains of the San Gabriels in a in a really strategic way, and so you know, again, it's kind of good sound science, good economics because you know if you talk to Geico or Farm or State Farm or any of the big folks, I mean the amount of money folks are paying out for some of these kind of animal collisions are massive. So it's a huge savings to uh, to insurance companies and, and taxpayers, 
and it's a you know kind of good jobs investment for for wildlife. So those are the types of solutions that we'll be promoting. Now I I don't mean to be facetious, but I often am. Um, when you build, you know, if you, if you put these these overpasses in, do animals instinctively know to use those alternative routes, or do you have to put up signs? Oh no, it's, it's, no, it's, 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 it's a fair question. Um, and, and, the, and the way the, the ones that work best, there's a there's a huge one in Washington State that's one that's been incredibly successful. Um, and now the animals know. I mean, so you make you make the overpass look like the habitat, right? So it's not a you know, it's not a typical pedestrian bridge with like you know pavers or whatever on the you know or cement. Um, you know, it, it, it'll be you know grass and dirt and you know head vegetation, and you won't be able to see that it's you know kind of over a highway. You kind of you know feel that. So in terms of their their line of sight, it just looks like a it just looks normal um, as uh, just, just normal you know kind of habitat that's connected. Um, but so yeah, so it's not just signage, but it's just it's just the normal um, kind of habitat signals. And, and, you know, and these, these species are incredibly intelligent. I mean, they, they, you know, if there's fences or guardrails, you know, kind of preventing them from getting on the highway, I mean, they will kind of look around and then eventually they'll you know, find, kind of find the right way. Um, but the research is amazing. And I, I wish, you know, if this wasn't a kind of audio medium, but a visual one, um, I, I'd love to share with you some of the pictures that folks have of, of, of you know, huge species coming across these crossings, even before they're, even before, um, they're completed, um, because, you know, the species know that the, that's the right place, and they're so eager to kind of get to the other. I, don't know, I feel like it's a punchline or a joke, but to get to the other side. Well, we have uh, you know a, a a saying in Michigan: whenever somebody looks, uh, you know, stunned by something that that they look like a, a deer in the headlights. Um, is is that something that that? All animals experience um, th- that sense of not being sure whether to to jump or get out of the way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, this is basic fight or flight biology, right? And you know, for a lot of you know non non predators, so the, the the deer being a good example of a you know a, 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 a vegetarian um, you know species, I, I think there there is this you know there's this kind of innate natural fear. Um, of trying to know, you know, whether something that's approaching is a threat or not. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that as, as, you know, suburban development has moved into more you know, forested environments, we're seeing, you know, more, you know, back roads and things like that to try to connect developments. Um, you do have those kind of moments with, you know, deer, um, where, you know, a deer will see the, the headlight and they'll freeze um, because it's not something they're used to seeing. And they're trying to think through, you know, and it's, it's the driver of the car is also trying to, you know, figure out whether they're going to move out of the way and trying to react accordingly. And so, again, just by being a little more strategic um, and with investments and also sighting, you know, we, we think we can avoid a lot of the, the collisions. And obviously, Michigan's, you know, got, has had huge numbers of, you know, deer collisions, um, you know, over the past several years. And there might be a way to eliminate some of that through both better management practices as well as some kind of strategic habitat investments. Well, there there are signs all all over the highway yeah, system in Michigan with, you know, with with deer and you know, um, and, and it's not so much that these are deer crossings as areas where deer are likely to, you know, pop up and um, it's it they serve as kind of a reminder for people to maybe be watching a little more closely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and look, and I think you know, it's, it's hard to even imagine now. But you know, at the tr- at, in 1936, when the federation was founded, um, there were less than 50, 500,000 deer left on, on in, 
in in the lower 48. I mean, now that number is, you know, we're somewhere between 30 and 40 million um, here um, because of all this great you know, habitat work that's been done. Now, unfortunately, we didn't have the same level of focus on a lot of the other species that we were talking about earlier. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's you know, kind of everything in balance, right? We want to well, have... Well, game animals monthly. and fish get a lot more attention than other species. Exactly. Exactly. And so we're trying to, and we're just trying to make sure that we're given the same level of attention to the full range of species. Because, you know, I mean, if I'm a farmer in northern Michigan, I'm seeing my pollinator population decline, and that's affecting my yields. You know, I mean, you know, it becomes an economic issue, right? I mean, if I'm seeing you know water pollution that's contaminated, that's you know affecting humans drinking water, but also is you know leading to fewer fish, or seeing you know more Asian carp, or seeing more you know zebra mussels. I mean, like these are all things that we can get ahead of. We just we haven't invested nearly at the level we have for you know, some other species. There's been a, a debate in uh, uh, past years uh, here in Michigan about wolf hunting and whether mm-hmm. it should be allowed or not. And one of the arguments has been that wolf were uh, uh, encroaching on farms and, and killing farm animals. Um, it, there was never really as much of that <laughs> as uh, as uh, supporters of the wolf hunting uh, initiative would have you believe but but the truth is is that more and more we're seeing news stories about um wildlife encroaching into neighborhoods and in uh, business districts um you know everything from bears to to wolves to wild turkeys um is that a result of this encroachment on on natural habitats and um are these animals sort of encroaching back yeah i mean i think in, in some cases i'd argue we were encroaching on their habitat but i, I take your point um yeah i mean like i think i think the success of successful recoveries of, uh, of a lot of species especially the ones that we hunt and fish like most ones you mentioned um have led to populations that have, you know, in, in some cases, you know, encroached in other areas. In some cases, it's because of additional development elsewhere, um, kind of forcing species to, you know, relocate into other um, into other areas. But at the, at the end of the day, in the, in the wolf example, I mean, it, it's it's a little sad that it's become such a um, a huge fight in, in in some ways because the recovery itself is actually an amazing success story. I mean, those populations were on the brink of you know disaster 30 years ago. And 40 years ago, and you know, the fact they've come back, and you know, we'd like to see you know, kind of rational you know, state management. Um, obviously, there have been some challenges in some other states where, you know, most recently in Wisconsin, where there there was a hunt allowed that you know, obviously was was way over subscribed and way over participating. The levels were unacceptable from a scientific point of view. But these these are the kinds of you know conversations we'd like to get ahead of by having you know, better resources, better science, better management, um, because you know these especially the predators. I mean, like, we, you want to have systems that are in balance, right? You want to have healthy, you know, predator populations in some cases because they help maintain you know, kind of rational kind of population levels across the board. So, you know, I just think that we, we take some of the stuff for granted until there is that, you know, story where somebody sees something in their backyard or all of a sudden, you know, folks don't think about how we how we got to that point. That's true. And and this is a fascinating conversation, and, and it's a lot of fun talking with you, Colin. I really appreciate you spending this time with me um we're just about out of time i can't believe how fast the time has gone um 
But I, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Not just the uh, um, Wildlife Restoration Act, but um, just this idea of um, conservation and the different things that can and need to be done. Um, is is there um, a National Wildlife Federation website with um, articles and links and, and ways that people can, can research this a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. We'd love to have anyone go to the National Wildlife Federation website. It's, it's pretty simple. It's nwf.org, O-R-G. Um, and, and they can find all kinds of information, whether it's about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act or how to do native habitat in their backyard or their kid's school or their or their church or their uh, or their or synagogue or temple. Um, it's it's there's a lot of articles. There's a it's actually an encyclopedia of kind of all North American wildlife. Folks want to learn more about species, all these education programs around there too. And um, we'd love to have folks, you know, check it out. You can also find us on social media and on Twitter and and Facebook and just type in National Wildlife Federation, everything will come up um, pretty quickly. But we'd love to have all your listeners, you know, learn more and kind of join the cause. Well, one one final thing, and, and I, I I can't help wondering, what career path led you to be, to become president of the National Wildlife Federation? So I, I was I was actually a ranger Rick kid growing up. So my mom oh, was really? a school teacher. My dad was in the military. Yeah, my mom was yeah. So my mom was a school teacher. My dad was in the military, and um, we we got the magazine. I grew up in upstate New York in Syracuse. And um, we would actually do the activities. I mean, I still remember. I, I can't tell you what I you know, ate for TV, ate for you know lunch three days ago, and this kind of COVID insanity. But I can still remember like being five years old, planting milkweed in the backyard with my mom. And then my dad was you know more outdoorsy, where we would go you know you go out fishing or go out to uh, you know long hikes and the like. And um, so it just I means one of the great things. It's like being in you know in, in Michigan, right? There's just so many amazing outdoor opportunities in in the Great Lakes region. Um, this lies around the kind of Finger Lakes of, of upstate. Um, you know, we were just outdoors all the time. And so when I went to I went to school, I was always thinking about you know, how do you how do you help bring back communities and create economic opportunities by restoring natural resources. Um, but I was I've been blessed to be able to work in you know I, I ran a state agency in Delaware and overseeing natural resources. I've done some work out in California, kind of on on the environmental side. But I've been able to you know, just kind of have my, my hobby and my career be the same thing. <laughs> well, that's, 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 that's wonderful, Colin. My, my guest is uh, National Wildlife Federation President Colin O'Mara. Colin, thanks again, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on today. Take care. Thanks. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. 
Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. love rot <laughs> love has rot beauty love is the world the world is love and the great lovers of the world have made the earth a very precious beautiful and lovely place where is the love tell me it's, it's there it's there <laughs> Oh, where is the love? It's there. Where is the love? It's there. Do you know where the love is? It's there, Tom. It's all around you. Love is everywhere. Love is ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-moving. Love is passionate. It is flowing. It is sweet. It is wonderful. Love is compassion. Love is... Love is God. This is a song of two lovers. Right. Not world-famous lovers. Not a Romeo and Juliet. Not that type of a love. But two people whose love was an unrequited love. Unrequited love. Very beautiful love. A love that very few people ever hear of. It's a story of Herman and Sally. You've heard of them, huh? Herman was a lobster, and Sally was a crab. <laughs> Never work out that way, will it? <laughs> Herman met Sally on the beach one night. The sea was calm and the starfish were bright. He looked at her and she looked at him and it was True love at first sight Now Herman told his folks about the girl he found And they said, Herman, there must be other girls around <laughs> Cause crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Everybody sing now! Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Where is love? Yeah. Try singing like that <laughs> Poor Herman and poor Sally. Whence did their love whence wrong? Oh, the bittersweet pain of love's nectar. Yes, Herman, though he loved Sally, could not marry her, could not have her for his own. Herman was a lobster, Sally was a crab. Herman lived in a restricted neighborhood. <laughs> So he had to make a decision. And Herman made a decision which was sad and very hard for him to do. But then, being a lobster, Herman had no backbone. 
Herman told Sally and it broke her heart She had loved that lobster right from the start He took her in his closet and said I'll always be yours But still, we really have to part Sally said let's talk to your mom and your dad I'll show them that crabs really aren't that bad <laughs> They turned her away, what would the neighbors say? And they laughed at the funny walk she had Two, three, four Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Sing out friends now Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Once again, gang! Oh, crabs walk sideways Lobsters walk straight and we won't let you take her for your pain. One more time now! Crabs walk sideways. Lobsters walk straight and we won't let you take her for your pain. One day on a sandbar, what did Herman see? But his little old Sally walking straight as can be. He said, Sally, I can take you in my family. And she said, Herman, don't you sweetheart me. <laughs> Crabs walk sideways, and lobsters walk straight, and we won't let you take it for your man. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Mission Radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com. Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>